Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to this Irish Tech News Podcast. Today I'm talking with Malky Brown, who's senior, uh, sorry, producer of the New York Times. How are you, Malky? Very well, good to be with you. Good, thanks. Tell us a bit about your background. Um, I got into journalism after spending just about seven or eight years uh, working as a computer programmer. Um, I did engineering in uh, UCD and uh, and computer programming were about the only jobs you could get at the time. Um, There's plenty of them and um, when I qualified. And uh, yeah, so I went back then, did a master's and um, got an apprenticeship at uh, Village Magazine, essentially. And uh, that was being run by um, a relative of mine at the time, uh, Vincent Brown. And he needed a website and I needed uh, experience in journalism and so I, I joined there and uh, started learning the ropes of journalism um, and then started doing digital features and things like that on the website. And um, after Village closed down, um, created another one called um, created another one called Political. Um, and we used to do things on that, like aggregating data from different sources about politicians and have a one landing page with lots of different information. Um you know, expense claims, salaries, um, declarations of in- interest, kind of background and articles that we had about um, elected representatives. Um, and then I joined, uh, after a couple of years, uh, joined Storyful. And Storyful was kind of a marriage of technology and journalism. We were using technology to um, detect events, newsworthy events from social media and then using uh, other technology and the information that we had uh, divined from the social web um, to get visuals and manage the rights of the visuals so that broadcasters and news organizations um, could could run stories um, using, using the visuals. Um, and that was my sort of entry into you know, I, I suppose the sphere of visual journalism that we're working in now at the Times. Yeah, and I guess with social media been been involved a lot in uh, Storyful, you were able to detect fake news as well. Yeah, that's a, a primary part of it. Um, as Mark Little always said, uh, he was the founder of, uh, of Storyful, you know, um, fake news and disinformation can spread really fastly, but can re- really quickly on on social media. But it can also be debunked really quickly by people. Um, so uh, you know that was a big part of of our methodology, um, and we used to share that as well. If we found information to be false, we would put that out there publicly and kind of give a warning to news organisations. Um, uh, about the about the bad information, but we we had a very strict methodology there. We would you know we would verify any p any picture or video that we were putting onto uh, the agency's system, the hub as we used to call it, um, would go through a, a background check. You know who took it and who are they? Are they partisan? Are there any reasons to be concerned about uh, an agenda they may have, uh, or what motivated them to to take a picture? Um, We'd verify the location by comparing 
you know, details that you see in the photograph with Google Street View or with satellite imagery. You know, you might spot a tree or a minaret of a mosque or a church or a large building. Um, and then the date and ideally the time that, um, that the events happened, you know, um, usually you're, you're looking for corroborating information that's also shared on social by eyewitnesses um, to have kind of multiple sources describing a similar event around a similar time. But you could also go forensic, um, you know, into that as well and look at the shadows that were cast by a tree and use sundial calculators to establish the time of day and even the month of the year. So, um, yeah, there's, you know, those kinds of skills um, uh, and sort of fact-checking. It's a, it's a type of digital fact-checking that we were using to answer traditional low journalistic questions about who, why, where, when, what happened. I guess right now that's more has become basically common standard, but years ago when you were doing it, it was uh, probably the first thing in the world that was doing it. Um, yeah, Storyful definitely was the first um, news organization to specialize in it. There were a few people out there who um, who were kind of doing it on a freelance basis and then, you know, turned it into a profession, you know, groups like Bellingcast. Yeah. Um, there were other folks out there, um, like Andy Carvin at that time, who were acting kind of like radio disc jockeys, if you like, on the, on Twitter or on the social web, where they would be, you know, requesting information from uh, people who are in a certain country um, and, and that sort of thing. And it was kind of an incremental figuring out what's going on around an event. But we took, to ver- took a very strict and structured approach to it um, and made a business out of it. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think definitely... Um, you know, there was, uh, yeah, we, we kind of, and the thing about it is as well, actually, looking back on it, is we we kind of made it up as we went along to a certain extent. We were like, okay, well, how, how do we fact check this and how do we convey to our clients in a very succinct, clear way uh, the confidence that they can have in this uh, in this material? because that's what they wanted. They wanted, what well, essentially what we were selling was trust in this new misunderstood medium. And I don't know if you remember back in those days, um, news organizations would always say, we can't independently verify this information. And that used to drive us mad because you can actually yeah. independently verify it if you go to the trouble of doing so. But, but, but to us, you know, there was an understanding that our clients need to be kind of walked through step by step what our check process was and what our checklist was. And we were very transparent as well about the information that we, we presented. Because I guess at the time, they were probably saying, we're not going to check check because it'll save us money. But in the long term now, fake news has become such a, a hot topic. It has to be checked to make sure it's verifiable and correct. Yeah, uh, I mean, accuracy is paramount, um, and we all make mistakes, and, um, you know, uh, as soon as you realize a mistake, you have to um, make efforts to correct it. Um, but, um, so, so yeah, I mean, accuracy is, is paramount. I mean, there's, there's no point being first and being wrong. Um, yeah. And as somebody told me before, you know, audiences never remember who was first breaking the news story, but they always remember who was wrong with the story. Um, particularly 
sensitive ones like misidentifying, um, you know, people who are involved in a terror attack or what have you. Yeah. So uh, at the moment, you in New York Times, you recently won an Emmy for your work on an investigative documentary into Las Vegas massacre of last year. How did that come about? Uh, yeah, the um, Las Vegas shooting was a, a story that captured uh, American audiences in, in a way that no other has. It was the worst mass shooting in modern American history. Uh, it was an absolutely awful event. 58 people killed within 10 minutes and 400 people shot. Imagine that in 10 yeah. minutes by one guy. Um, and the police you know, kind of bungled the um, the provision of information to uh, the public and to the media afterwards. They, they uh, gave a different timeline uh, on three different occasions for when the thing happened. They were really tight-lipped about the information and the investigation and what they were finding out. Um, they came under a lot of scrutiny. You know, we knew ourselves that the official timeline that they were giving didn't stand up to the um, visual evidence that, that we had. Um, so we started digging down into it deeper just to see, could we get a, a better understanding of what happened? And uh, in short, that entailed gathering dozens of videos and pictures of the night, um, uh, looking, scanning frame by frame through all of those pictures and identifying that, okay, that that camera phone passes by a watch and you can see 10.07 in the watch. This one passes by a taxi um, dashboard and you can see in the, the, in the calling system that it's 10.13. Um, another one, you know, passes by another clock and it's, it's 10.05. The body cam of a, the, of a police officer, they did release a couple of police um, body cam videos. That's 10.09. And so we started to structure it and then by listening to the gunfire bursts in every video, um, recognized that there's a pattern, the duration of each burst down to the millisecond, the interval to the next burst of fire, and also the pattern, because this guy was using what are called bump stocks, which turn a semi-automatic into a fully automatic, yeah. and they don't work in a consistent way, so there was a kind of a pattern to the bullets as they were being fired, and all of that gave us a fingerprint for every burst of fire. There were 12 in all, and some of the videos captured multiple bursts. And by lining up all of those bursts and layering the videos over each other, we understood, you know, came to realize that we've got the entire event um, from the second it started to well after it ended um, in video. And we can analyze from multiple different camera angles what was going on in the hotel around the, uh, the, the perimeter and inside the festival. And then by layering over scanner audio, we could tell what the police were up to and what the medical services were up to and how they were responding. Um, and so it gave us just a much richer and a very accurate um, picture of, of what happened. And there was a lot of media and, you know, audience interest in that. Yeah, I guess it highlighted uh, basically what actually went in, down in, in, a, in a timeline where you could see how it, how it started and how it finished. Uh, you could, yeah. I mean, you could. I mean, it was it was more that it was analyzing what was going on in in between. You know, one, for instance, one of the exits to the ground remained closed. They and people were trapped and hemmed in there. And, and in that corner, that's where a lot of people were killed. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, that was in clear view of the gunman. Um, you know, there were other things about like when lights were turned on and turned off. Um, uh, you know, we could also see as more footage came out even after that, um, uh, where the police went to and how they entered the hotel and the lack of coordination amongst them. You know, at one point they, they ended up facing each other down in the corridor, shouting at each other, pointing guns at each other. Um, meanwhile, this guy's upstairs. Um, you know, things things like that. So it raised questions. Um, it answered a lot of questions as well about what happened for people. That was the overwhelming response that we got from people who had been at the festival. Um, and, uh, yeah, just just kind of gave you a deeper understanding. It also gave us, for the first time, an accurate bullet count. You know, he fired around 1,100 bullets in, in less than 10 minutes. Um, and so... You know, hopefully that contributed to the um, gun control um, debate that, uh, that continues over here. And also, yes, it also it, it told uh, law enforcement officers what they should or shouldn't do if it happened again. Yeah, I think we heard also that, that the video was used in um, police reviews and um, um, not training exercises, but kind of um, yeah, reviews of the event after afterwards. Uh, so, but I, but I don't I don't know uh, to what extent they, um, you, you know what they drew from it. Yeah, but I guess for you, winning winning an Emmy shows that you've done something that's they can proud of in years to come, and will always be there as a historical moment in time. Well, it's I mean, it's an like it was such an awful event. You 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 know you don't congratulate yourself for winning an Emmy and something like that, but. Um, I suppose for me it was satisfying that the medium is being recognised. We call calling this visual investigations inside the Times, and we're building a team around it, and um, you know, really kind of trying to develop it as its own distinct type of visual journalism. And um, yeah, so for for it to be for that to be recognised by sort of our peers in the industry is, um, I suppose. A bit rewarding, but um, yeah. Anyway, you kind of forget about it then and move on to the next yeah. uh, next project. You know, yeah. next latest month you're talking at the social media uh, live conference in in Dublin. What will you be talking about? Um, I'll be talking about some of the reporting um, and showing some of the reporting behind these stories, um, and uh, I'm hoping that people will kind of relate to that when I've done it before they have because a lot of this is what's called open source reporting and that means that it's information that's publicly available that um, you know amateur historians or journalists or researchers um, include as well as professionals can find out there in the open web and a lot of tools that are also available out there in the open web and uh, you know you know free tools that people can use to analyze um, audiovisual content, and um, and it just kind of it's presenting these stories as you know they're not rocket science, but it's about just about knowing the right places to look for information, and then to parse that information uh, into into evidence, um, and then to be able to analyze it. Obviously, so it'll be showing you know that kind of reporting behind the stories, and then. Um, yeah, then some of the more um, technical ones that, that involve proprietary software and things like that. I'll, I'll show some of those, just kind of give a flavor of 
where this type of analysis and reconstruction is going. Um, so we've we've done a couple of other stories that are much deeper um, and more, more involved in reconstructing, you know, a crime scene in a 3D model and then analysing the crime scene and, and things like that. So um, that's at the sort of upper end of of the type of stuff that we're doing. So um, yeah, we're, like we're you know inside the times now that we've got more people interested in this, we're we're using sort of the skills of the graphic department and, um, you know, uh, the audio department and there's members of um, on staff who are formerly army vets and, you know, have, have literally written books about different types of weaponry. Um, so we're, we're bringing all of that expertise in and it's, you know, proving to be really helpful. So that's kind of it's sort of a level up from um, uh, from the open source uh, analysis. So, just to give a flavour of where it's going. Yeah. Now, what? Uh, now, when it comes to social media platforms, which one do you like using the most, or the least? Ah, uh, different. I don't know if I'd say I like using any of them. <laughs> to be honest with you, I, I killed Facebook from my phone. Yeah. Messenger. Um, not so long ago. Um, I use different ones for different things. Like I use um, Facebook, you know, to stay in touch with friends and, and things like that. And I use Twitter for journalism and then right. I use Instagram. I've got a you know closed Instagram account um, just for sharing photos and seeing what other friends are up to as well. But um, yeah, in terms of, in term, you know, what I use social media most for is um, finding information and finding evidence. And that's not lurking on friends or ex-boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever it's you know it's like okay um you know there was a chemical weapons attack on this day in this town um how can we remote sense that and we have tools that will search across all of the social media platforms at once um and you go to different ones for different things like twitter might have you know, um, a couple of eyewitnesses or uh, particular search terms um, for that particular, for that area or slang for a location or the police or something like that. And it's like, that's information that helps me then search across multiple different social media platforms. So um, that's, that's what I do. But, um, but some of the, on a personal level, some of uh, the tracking that goes on, um, uh, with uh, so you know social media platforms is a little disconcerting, and that's why I deleted some of them from my phone. Yeah, well, with Facebook, I've got it because I contact Jesus to contact friends and maybe share some some work that a podcast has written. But a lot of times, I'm not a big fan of it. But I, I like using Twitter because Twitter is it's so easy to to share content, and within minutes you you, you can find out if the story is fake or real. Um, that's true. There's a risk with Twitter as well, actually, though, and uh, we've seen it this week um, that when the crowd goes to work on identifying people that are involved in an event, and that the, the event I'm thinking of this week is um, the disappearance of the Israeli, or sorry, no, Israeli, the Iranian, uh, sorry, not even Iranian, my God, it's too early in the morning, yeah. sorry. Uh, the disappearance of um, Jamal Khashoggi. He's a Saudi uh, dissident um, journalist and a critic of the Saudi government. He's gone missing. And um, Turkish officials leaked 
photographs of what they describe as a Saudi hit squad. Um, and of course, Twitter went to work trying to identify them. They identified some of them correctly, but many others incorrectly. Um, and um, that's the risk with, um, with with open source and amateur open source. And, and that's why... Um, Everybody should subscribe to a trusted news organization like the New York Times <laughs> for for more accurate information. Um, but uh, uh, I guess, but the subscriptions are are a big part of uh, of funding journalism. You will, but yeah. it's also just a risk out there. Yeah. Huh? I always look at that whenever on Twitter. I follow certain people that I know I can trust because over the years and months they've they've been accurate enough that you know you can trust them. Yeah, that's true. I think on the other side, you're right. You can uh, build a relationship directly with uh, with journalists. Yeah, on social. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because there's a few like right now when I'm looking, for example, at Syria, uh, I'm hearing a lot of different stories about the White Hats and other stories about who's doing what, and it's good to get an independent view and, and not not get anything as biased. So certain people, I look at that, I'm thinking they I can probably trust them. I can't trust because after a while, you're going to see a pattern emerging. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, what happens a lot as well these days is that, um, you know, certain stories or theories or, you know, um, testimony that people give is shot down as being biased for whatever, for one reason or another. Um, and the type of work that we're doing with the visual investigations is this is essentially documentary evidence that we're able to analyze and it will, it will, Tell us who's lying and who's telling the truth. Essentially, it'll, it'll it'll align with one side of the story in you know in a very partisan place like Syria um, or even Yemen. Um, you know, you, you can reveal a lot through the evidence, and you know that's kind of the core of the type of journalism that we're trying to do. Because I look at people like Robert Fisk, who for years has been involved in Middle Eastern politics. And whenever I read something, he says, "I've got a. I know that what he's going to give me is going to be impartial. He's going to tell it as it is." And you get other guys who come along and debunk him because they want to do that. But it's great to be able to decipher who's good and who's bad by uh, by who you follow. You can more or less tell within minutes or while reading someone's content if they're biased towards one way or another. And you know, Robert Fisk is not biased anyway. He just tells the truth. Yeah, I would challenge you a little bit on Fisk, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a major chemical weapons attack in Douma uh, in April that killed dozens of people, and he actually went there. He had the, um, you know, the, the privilege of actually going there. Um, but he went on, you know, a sort of a, a state, a Syrian state-guided tour of the area, and um, he presented, you know, a... a a very forceful defense of what Syria had said, that they had no involvement in it. Now, he didn't appraise all of the available evidence. Yeah. And he, you know, took a tour around the place and he gave um, this um, this very definitive uh, report from there, which we spent months investigating it, and we came up with an entirely different conclusion. And we used actual um, evidence and analyzed it to come to that conclusion. So, um, you know, uh, so, yeah, he, he, he's, of course, he's extremely experienced, knows the, the, the Middle East um, inside out, um, but doesn't always get it right. Yeah, I, I guess no one does. There's always, you said earlier, there's always going to be mistakes made. Yeah. yeah. 
Is there anything else about the podcast? Uh, anything else? Yeah. Or uh, um, no, I think um, no. I mean, like any opportunity I can, I remind people that journalism is really expensive, and if you believe it's kind of a, a plank of democracy to keep power in check and and hold um, people of power to account, then subscribe to whatever your local um, newspaper website outlet is. Um, become a member if they don't have subscriptions like The Guardian does. Um, and don't just do it with one, do it with a, with a couple of them. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's, it's a, it's, it really is expensive. Um, the advertising model is absolutely tanking um, and, and that's putting real pressure on newsrooms. They're cutting um, resources all over the place. Um, and, you know, now, as much as ever, there's a need to invest in, you know, good news analysis and investigative journalism, as well as all of the other things that people are interested in, like like sport and culture and arts and entertainment. But um, it's just kind of a, a reminder that I throw out there. All right. Thanks so much for that. And have a great day, Malachi. And uh, good luck at, at, at the conference later this, later this month. And take it easy. Thanks very Thanks. much. Cheers. Thank Thanks. you. Bye.